Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So, sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. Hey, welcome to AF Fireside. Excited to have you back again for another installment in our series of women-owned, women-operated, women-founded brands. Uh, really excited about this one. Hits close to home. Uh, talking today to Rhonda Kalman from Boston Harbor Distillery, among a multitude of other awesome endeavors in her career. Rhonda, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. How's uh, how, how's life, you know, as we said just a few minutes ago, we're not out of the pandemic yet, but we're starting to feel like maybe we're going to get there. Um, how, how are things yeah, out in Boston? We're lucky. Because we're making, you know, we were deemed essential <laughs> because we could make hand sanitizer. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. How yeah, did that? How did that change change things right out of the gate? I'm sure that you were. Did you have any any point where you were shut down? No, just our uh, front of the house business, of course, sure. and then outside of the distillery, like seventy percent of our business was done in restaurants, so we were <laughs> shut down in a lot of other ways. Yeah. Uh, but we luckily when we got shut down we had just made whiskey so we had heads available oh okay and there was such a panic from like government places and, and nursing homes and our post office and we were just like people were coming in they were so scared and we were just happy to give them whiskey heads here yeah. Go. Yeah. we didn't sell anything but it was it just sort of eased us into this new thing and it was sure. a bizarre situation of yeah. course that's that's uh, good to have at least a direction that you know you could go in out of the gate. That was God. It yeah. feels like years ago now, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like it was that's so it. so long ago? Cool. So I know that that the distillery is just uh, the most recent chapter of of your history in the industry. But could you tell us a little bit about uh, about the brand that you're operating now? Oh yeah. It's, well, um, I started Boston Harbor Distillery in 2012. Um, to make what is my first love, whiskey. I've always loved whiskey. And I, you know, from a business perspective, I realized there was a white space really in the Boston and regional New England area for whiskey making and whiskey production. And um, I thought, well, this makes sense to me and uh, found this beautiful old uh, falling down dilapidated junk collector's warehouse. Uh, awesome. Fortunately, my husband is a builder so he's like there's your distillery i'm like that piece of john he's like yep and it's it, you could see the background here that is a picture of the inside of of the distillery that's you know been the center of entrepreneurial commerce since the mid 1800s so it's really inspired me the building it and the locality of it and being you know i have these beautiful views of boston like i was born and raised within 20 miles of the distillery um, it's really been an amazing ride. Um, um, 
I'm glad that we're going into our fifth year of, of being open uh, because of the pandemic, of course, if we were right. brand new startup, boy, would it be a, it would be a mess. Um, so yeah, we're making whiskey and uh, we're making and we make rum and some liqueurs and they were really uh, in the names and the brands were inspired by those entrepreneurs that had commerce in the same building since the 1850s. So um, I always have it next to me, but this is my Putnam rye whiskey, oh, our number okay. one seller. And this is was the Putnam nail factory um, in the 1850s. And they made horseshoe nails. Uh, oh, cool had government contracts that applied horseshoe nails to both sides of the Civil War. So this guy is uh, General Israel Putnam. These were on the logos from the Putnam Nail Factory. I just stuck them on the bottle. But oh, cool. uh, they have inspired me. And, and uh, General Israel Putnam, the Revolutionary War hero, was born in, in Danvers, Mass. So there's a little place called Putnam Pantry there. And uh, I, I grew up in Lynn and Peabody. And so Danvers is kind of between the two. Sure. And I used to go there for ice cream and penny candy. So it's kind of <laughs> talking about coming full circle. Yeah, right. But it's, it's uh, we're getting there. You know, the whiskey business is not for the faint of heart, of course. For sure. And, yeah. Boston is Boston is such a funny city. I feel like for being around pretty much since the beginning of uh, our historical record, right? Been around forever. Um, there's so much that the city has, but there's also so many things that it doesn't have yet or like niches that haven't hit Boston yet. And, and it's funny, you know, you mentioned whiskey, but there really isn't, there isn't a lot of uh, craft alcohol in, in Boston. I think about for my world, there isn't like a good denim shop out in, uh, out in Boston. It's funny. It's it, as, as, as much as it is so settled, there's still a lot of room for, for pioneering. Um, but totally, yeah. I mean, a lot of the trends come from California. They come west to east, and uh, we have to start changing that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, for, for those that, and, and I don't, you know, we could probably talk about how Boston is the greatest city in the world. Well, sometimes. That's I, yeah. Right. Yeah. It depends. Grass, <laughs> but it is. It, it is such a, a unique energy to the city, and and a place where. You know, there's so many stereotypes. Think about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck movies, right? All those stereotypes that are so established. Um, and a lot of them are true and a lot of them aren't. But do you think that you could kind of give us a rundown for folks that aren't familiar with the area? What what does it mean to you to be born and raised in Boston, both both as a, you know, as a person and entrepreneur, but also as a brand? Well, you know, Boston was always known as a, as a drinking culture, um, you know, and, and even in my days growing up, we were five deep at the bar at happy hour. It was just, woohoo! it was a lot of fun. Um, it's, it's work hard. It's play hard. Yeah. And in Boston, um, and it really resonates there. I might, my, my uh, one of my team members that work with me now, she's from Tennessee. She, she's like, it's, it's five o'clock. Like uh, we're done. I'm like, uh, I don't think so. You might be, but I am not, I'll be here. It'll like whatever. And they just, you know, it's a totally different culture, but it's really work hard, play hard. Um, you know, it's a very tight political scene and I'm starting to see that change a bit, particularly with Marty Walsh kind of going, mm -hmm. moving on. I, I think it's going to be a whole new world for us. Um, not to say Marty was bad or good or any of that, but, you know, I, hopefully it was that last bastion of white 
Irish mayor yeah. <laughs> or Italian, you know, Menino. But um, so it's uh, it's almost an insulated city in that uh, though there's transients from all over the place, and there's college, the best colleges and the best hospitals, and um, but you really uh, even if you're you're, you're not from Dorchester and you're from Lynn instead. It's like a totally different world, you know? So they, they really keep to themselves in these little yeah. neighborhoods. And so it's hard to penetrate from a branding perspective. Right. It's very difficult, but it's exciting. And uh, I just, you know, I, I hope the city bounces back. We've seen a lot of gentrification there, you know, the Seaport, for example. Mm-hmm. We used to be a series of parking lots but at least you could see the ocean, right. you know? And it's uh, it's been interesting, but it's neighborhoods like the one that the distillery is in that still has character right. um, from whence it came and that history. And that's that's really, and I can go on and on about Boston yeah. because I my heart is definitely there. It's, yeah. it's been difficult and um, we're just not easy to change. And you know, from a branding perspective, I was just telling a story this morning about it. I understand Total Wine, which is this big, huge, you know, mega store for all things booze, which I love, mm-hmm. which happens to be in my, you know, my top accounts. But their business model, I think, is to showcase small producers that they make better margins on from all over the country, like their their Total Wine Direct. Right. And I've just been told, like in Massachusetts. They're not, their numbers are different. They're selling a lot less of their own lesser known brands than they are big brands because Boston is a very branded city. Sure. And it takes a while to break through for sure. Yeah, interesting. Well, and, and you've definitely probably seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of different ebbs and flows in the branding scene. Could you give us a little bit of a snapshot of the career you've had in the alcohol industry so far? Sure, well, um, I didn't make any money from it, but I started drinking very early on when I was still <laughs> single digits. So I love that. But I started working in bars and restaurants when I was 15 years old. And I've just always loved the environment and the people and the conviviality to it all. Um, and I, I was a, a secretary and I, I moonlighted at night at, as a bartender and a waitress. And um, I worked at Boston Consulting Group. And that's where I met Jim Cook who um, is the founder of Boston Beer Company, which is makers of Sam Adams and now Truly um, and other things. And he asked me to help him start a beer company in 1983 because he knew about beer and business and I knew about bars. Um, and we just made a great team. But when he asked me, the first thing I said is, Jim, I don't, I don't drink beer. I drink whiskey. Well, I promise I'll make something that you'll like. And of course he did. And I spent 15 years there helping him make Sam Adams a household name. And it was pretty exciting. Uh, I was the, got a recognition award from the Brewers Association as being the pioneering woman in the beer industry. Um, there really were no women in alcohol at all. Prior to that, I was so intrigued about the business. I had applied to be a liquor salesperson and they wouldn't even take, they wouldn't even talk to me because I was a woman. Um, so it was pretty amazing time. Uh, everything that we did was different from what was inside that bottle to how we went to market, you know, to being a woman 
and I learned a lot. You need, and that's the other thing about Boston. You need to have thick skin. And I certainly learned, I got some layers during those years, but we were public when when I left and uh, that was pretty exciting as well. And, but I I started getting further and further away from what I really enjoyed, which was being in the bars and restaurants, out there with people, really understanding what they drink and how they drank it. And just kind of thinking about the next big, you know, the not the next big thing, but what is interesting to people and myself. And so I left um, after 15 years, there was an article that said, I stepped off my throne as the queen of beer. And you know what, it was true. I was making a ton of money. I was queen and I just wasn't really fulfilled inside. You know, you gotta look at yourself in the mirror and you only live once, I think, maybe. Well, well, who knows, (laughs) who knows. And you know, money's money and and money's good. And you know, but I really believe in myself and my abilities. Um, So I just stepped off for a while and it wasn't, a week or two that went by when uh, Jim's brewing consultant, his name was Dr. Joseph Awadis, he called me. I was in the Caribbean with my husband and I had two kids at the time. And he said, I'll make a beer, you start a company. And my first reaction was, oh shit, you know what, Joe? I, just, I don't know. I mean, how could I even compete? I mean, there was IPAs everywhere blueberry beers, like all kinds of different things. And, you know, frankly, why create something if it's not better or cheaper? Like why do it? Um, And there's passion, but you know, it needs to be viable, I think. And so I'm there in the Caribbean thinking about what he said. And he happened to be the man who invented light beer in 1967. And I'm in the Caribbean, it's hot. And uh, I called him back and I said, well, Joe, after, you know, it's been like 35 years, surely we can do a better light beer. And that was when New Century Brewing Company was born. That was the first, it was January of 2000. We had survived the whole Y2K thing. Everybody was still alive. And I decided to start, you know, a beer company and Joe was my brewmaster and it was, uh, you know, I spent 10 years doing that. I launched my, my brand Edison. I named it for the inventors of light um, innovation and, and light. And it was on the eve of 9-11. And that was really my first big bad decision of going forward with a very aggressive uh, marketing plan to get it out there, particularly in Boston and New York which were really hard hit. And I should have really pulled it back. And I was just like, those terrorists aren't gonna, you know, bother me. And it was tough because money had dried up. There was no money out there at that point, particularly for startups. And people really weren't interested in anything new. Um, It was because the world had just changed. So they really were looking for things that were comfortable to them that they knew particularly again in Boston and New York, but I was really out there against the big guys. Um, and it was clearly a better light beer and uh, same stats as a Bud Light, only it drank like a good craft Pilsner beer should. But you know what, craft people back then, uh, well, Stella Artois came out and it, I don't know if you remember that, but they had those goblets and they had, you know, big budgets. And uh, that really took the, 
took the positioning away in that what I realized is craft beer drinkers, they don't care about light beer, mm-hmm. but they need something lighter because, you know, I mean, maybe you can, but, you know, after four cloying hoppy beers, you need something else. I like light beer. <laughs> That's my yeah, preference these right? days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and really that was it for me. My foil was Bud Miller and Coors. Mm-hmm. And I, I could do it better. And though I just didn't have the budget. So in 9-11, you know, I limped along uh, places like Trader Joe's who love brands like mine. They loved it because they didn't sell Bud Miller, of course. So I had Trader Joe's nationally, some really good chef-owned operated restaurants. Because the only real quality light beer at the time was Amstelite. Mm-hmm. And so this was the you know, the other play for them. And so I I still believe in that brand, but, um, you know, I limped along for a while and I was, I was at a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert and I came up with this idea um, of putting caffeine in beer, like trace amounts of caffeine and caffeine is odorless and tasteless. So I called Dr. Awadies, who at the time was 80 years old, at least. And I said, Joe, can you make me a beer with caffeine? And he hung up on me. And I called him back and I took him through the business idea. I said, look, there's, you know, $100 billion worth of beer consumed in the United States every year. But if you want a little pick-me-up, you either have to go to disgusting Red Bull in vodka sorry, Um, you know, coffee, Irish coffee. And even Mountain Dew Code Red was just on fire. Mountain Dew is an old brand. I said, surely we can do this. So he called me back a couple of days later. He said, we can do this. He figured it out. And it was difficult. There were so many energy drinks on the market at the time. It's like, what the hell do I call it? Because they had taken all the good names. There were like Mm -hmm. 200. And we ended up calling it Moonshot. And it had 69 milligrams of caffeine in it. And it was the year the astronauts landed on the moon. And it was great. It was so great. And it finally, after eight years of struggling with that company, I was finally going for it. I had 7-Eleven was going to give me two facings of no one was putting craft beer in a can at the time. Mm-hmm. They were going to give me two facings of um a 24 ounce can. Anyway, Four Loco and Panther Juice had come gross. out. Gross. And instead of gross, right? Freaking <laughs> crap. In it. Anyway, it was bad. I, Meanwhile, I, never, I was getting I lambasted never, yeah. for all the craft from the craft guys. They sure. didn't want me to innovate. I don't know. It was, they were calling it crap in a can. And it wasn't, I mean, crap. Not craft, but crap. It's like, come on, fellas. It's all these guys that rank the beers and stuff. They've never actually started their own brewery before, really done anything other than not food. <laughs> but anyway, that, I digress. So I had all this stuff against me. But what, what happened was Four loco was in one can was 12% alcohol. It was 260 milligrams of caffeine. It was a speedball. And these college kids were drinking it and getting into trouble. And so the TTB, which rides herd over alcohol, um, and they wouldn't do it because they approved my mark on four different 
at four different times, but because it's caffeine, they went around us and went to the head of the FDA, Peggy Hamburg, and uh, she ended up shutting us down. So if you go to the TTB website, which is the Trade and Taxation Bureau, Division of Homeland Security, you would think that they would have other things to do. But they, uh, there it is, you know, Moonshot Beer banned. It was wow. <laughs> the only thing since Prohibition. And so I got caught in the net with Four Loco. They, so they ended up keeping their business going, but took the caffeine out. And I just, you know, I didn't want to take the caffeine out. That was the whole premise of the beer. Right. And uh, I just kind of part in the beer business. So I took a step back and, you know, that's when the idea for Boston Harbor Distillery happened. And so I found, you know, when life hands you lemons, I make lemonade. And this, in this case, I make whiskey and I just, it happened for a reason. And I really, really, really enjoy what I do. I feel like I've been training for this role my entire life. Awesome. Very cool. Wow. What, what a story. <laughs> the, the queen of beer and now the queen of whiskey. Very cool. So, <laughs> so looking, looking back at that, um, the span of the, of your career so far, how would you say that things have changed or progressed for women in, uh, you know, in the alcohol industry and what hasn't, what, what is yet to change? Well, I, I have been delighted to see, um, women in the industry for sure. Um, at, you know, when I was at Boston beer, when I left 55% of the company and were females and it wasn't, I didn't hire them because they were females. They happened to be the best for the job at hand that I interviewed. So that's why. Um, you know, with 51% of the population being women, it's, it's, we're just not treated as fairly. But so that's changed. And now there's female brewers and uh, there's lots of women working in and around this industry, which I love. Um, in the liquor business, there's a lot of women as well, uh, more, you know, I and I, people don't know me in the liquor business. So I'm kind of starting again, which is okay. Uh, but I'm like the original gangster. I mean, I, I'm 60 years old. I've been at this for nearly 40 years, you know, and uh, so whatever. I mean, it will be what it will be. But um, so I think the equality is there. You know, it, it's still, uh, you know, it's very difficult to raise capital. Um, more so being a woman. I mean, there's all kinds of stats that back up that statement. But, you know, you find it in it. Uh, when I've been out there raising capital and I've had people say to my, uh, when my, I have my beer company, New Century Brewing Company, they looked at him and they're like, they, they asked me, you know, well, who's home with your children? I have three kids. Who's home with your children? And he's sitting there. He's like, I have four children. How come you didn't ask me that? <laughs> you know? And that's just that unconscious bias that exists. And, and it's, People who have children have to make a point of not being a bigot and not being a racist and, yeah. and not being a misogynist and, and not being chauvinistic in front of their children. If they, you know, it, it's kind of generational and that's the way it used to be, but it doesn't, it's not that way anymore. And it's not happening fast enough. I hope, you know, I have two daughters and I hope that in my lifetime, they will have the equality that they deserve. I hope so too. So, so now looking at other, other types of hurdles and, and maybe we can speak specifically here to the experience with Boston Harbor distillery. Um, 
we work with brands mm-hmm. at American Field, not not just in in the liquor industry, but think about uh, CBD and body care and even even food and beverage. There's so many hurdles that you have to overcome, whether they be federal, state, or local regulations. Do you have any tips, any pro tips from you know the time that you've spent in a highly regulated industry for folks that are uh, facing struggles with regulations? Well, I guess the tip is, I mean, I have learned so much. And for the most part, um, so, you know, there's federal, there's state, there's city, and then I call it local, which is like neighborhoods and landlords and stuff like that. So you're basically going all these different things. Um, But at the federal level, at least in the alcohol business, it's free. Mm -hmm. So I never hired an attorney to do it. I, I just learned it. It took a long time and I'd be on the phone and I, you know, but they would have to talk to me eventually. Right. Oftentimes they never call me back, but I would keep calling. But I guess don't, you know, if you, if you're trying to watch your budget, of course, um, you can figure it out. So that, that, that's one pro tip um, that I think can save people tens of thousands of dollars. Um, the states are, are, you know, they, they regulate things differently in, in the alcohol business there's 50 different sets, 50 different states, and there's 50 different sets of regulations. Sure. And so I often would use my, my distributor, um, who was the local person that I had to sell to, um, and they would give me some guidance again, that was free. Oftentimes you have to pay the state. You have to write big fat checks for everything. <laughs> and uh, and the city as well, you know, learning the hard way. Um, in Boston, everything gets taxed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's amazing, you know, taxed and retaxed and retaxed again. So, um, yeah, so if you're doing a business plan, certainly taxes are a huge part of it. And these kinds of, you know, in, um these kinds of uh, charges that are reoccurring every year. So it's every year you have to pay $10,000. So you need to put that in your plan. Right. Depending on where you live. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard. And then it's the label. Oh my gosh. You know, the TTB, the government warning has to be exactly the right size. And, and the front of the label has to be exactly so. And things are changing all the time, but it is online. It is available and you just have to right. study it and then so make see, mistakes. Seek resources. And huh? <laughs> seek out your resources. That's, that's seek the takeaway. Seek resources. You're out there. Yeah, for sure. Free so ones, speaking yeah. about, about things being being online, how has e-commerce played into your strategy with, with Boston Harbor Distillery? That's, I would assume, a very regulated space. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is the future. I mean, look, look at everybody at home. And uh, I mean, look at Amazon. It's unbelievable. It, it um, is. I, I can't live without it for sure. And it, it's been a melee. It's been, you know, that's one of the things that the pandemic has brought on is the need to really, you know, pivot is such an overused word, but it right. is true. I feel like every three weeks I'm starting a new business. It's a lot. Um, but I, I spent like the better part of the the pandemic, trying to figure out the pieces to be able to get my brands delivered direct to somebody's door. And 
successes happen because there's a couple of um, retailers in, in, I went with one in DC and one in New York that the one in New York ships internationally and I get requests internationally, which is cool. Cool. Um, so we're just getting that piece set, settled. Um, just the last week or two, we got the back end of our website going, but you know, it's tough for the one-off things or the real innovation things or the limited edition. Uh, we can't can stay focused on our local market with those uh, for sure. So you can't sell them everything everywhere, but it's, it's starting to come together. Yeah. But unfortunately, it would be better if we could just ship direct, well, through UPS or FedEx, where they go and collect the, you know, the ID, they get paid for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because now I've got to share any margin we have with uh, the distributor and then with the retailer. And then if there's a backroom guy doing technology. So by the end of the day, you don't make a lot of money from it, but it's good exposure. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> sure. so you, you think that that, that business model, at least from the, from the brand perspective, those business models have not totally been figured out yet. No, because of, of, you know, alcohol and, and how difficult it is um, to right. get, you know, but cannabis, you can get that delivered right to your door. That, that I mean, you, you know, it's, you, you can't put the money that you make from that in a bank account, but you right. can get it delivered to your door. Like, come on. Really <laughs> come on. <sighs> so we're working on, I mean, look, beer is... Can you imagine? Like it's so heavy, it's like thirty-five pounds a case. You know, right. imagine shipping that hard. Yeah. So at so least a bottle of whiskey is a little easier. A little bit of a sure. different game. Do you have any any like personal strategies or or mantras or procedures for overcoming hardships? Yeah, I mean, what's like life? You know, life is hard, and <laughs> we know that. And it's for everybody. And so, yeah, we have to find it in ourselves to, um, to overcome, you know, it's mind over matter. And look, it's not easy for everybody. Um, and we all have different strategies and sometimes it might be drinking a little bit too much or <laughs> smoking a little weed or, or just going for a walk or doing meditation or yoga, something like that, which I don't do. I do the first two things more than the yeah, That's fair. <laughs> I remind myself that it's okay to be sad. And if we can learn from the things that were hard, then um, we'll all we'll be better people. I mean, it's easier said than done, but I, I've had to, you know, deploy those strategies in my head. You know, being shut down by the federal government when you thought Anheuser-Busch was your competition. It's, you know, getting your head around, you know, things that you can't control. Yeah. And it's control the controllables, I think. Uh, that yeah. would be uh, something I would remind everybody. Yeah, yeah. No, it's important to keep as many as many knowns known right be in control of the of the not variables <laughs> so that the variables don't surprise you as much so Rhonda, i'm curious uh you know with all the expertise and experience that you bring to the table uh what advice you might have for women that are looking to start a brand or business venture in 2021 well, uh, that's a good question and i think it's uh, <clears throat> and i've been doing this a long time so some of the the rules of the road still apply. 
which are you really need to find a business idea. You know, passion certainly fuels that. Uh, though, if you need to make money with it, then you need to find that that business idea and be able to break through. And it's a very crowded marketplace. It's a very good time to be a consumer uh, because there's so much choice. But you as, a, as an entrepreneur and a brand builder have to find a pathway to uh, being different, uh, whether that, you know, we, we talked about either being better or uh, having some innovation or just being cheaper. Um, so, you know, that's the, really the first thing and try to find that white space in your marketplace. Um, the other is financing. Um, it, you know, try to have that lined up. A, a lot of these, you know, I've never done business with a VC group. Um, actually, that's not true. Boston Beer was a little different, but my own, when I started my own stuff. And uh, so I, I can't really speak to that, but oftentimes even angel investors, they will ask you, you know, what have you bootstrapped? They just want to see you feel pain. <laughs> I don't know why, but they do. And maybe it's because they, you know, when you have skin in the game, you're going to really work harder at it. Um, sure. So there's a lot of that going on. So you need to really have your financing uh, laid out. But, you know, at the end of the day, you really have to believe in yourself and your abilities. And I think that's, you know, you've got core values and, and just stick to those. And there's going to, for whatever reason, there's going to be some people that are trying to break you down and uh, just, Believe in yourself and you'll make it through and it will be a really exciting, rewarding experience. You know, there are days when I thought, what the hell have I done? Like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. And I, well, there's no turning back now. I am in it. You know, I am in it and, um, and I'm going to win it in that. What does that mean to you? And as long as you could fulfill that need and, you know, the rest of your life happens as a result of something good, that's perfect. Totally. You spoke earlier about, um, you know, growing, growing layers, growing thicker skin. Do you think that that's a process that we, that we do naturally, or did, did you consciously grow a thicker skin? Um, I think I grew it because of the positions I put myself in. I don't, you know, fear is not an option for me. Um, and I just find my way. And so that it works. And, you know, my mantra is always a win, win, win for everybody. It's not I win and you lose or it, it's. And when you're when you have the right reason for doing things. The skin will grow, but you won't really always need it either. That makes sense. No, totally. I think that, yeah. that makes good sense for sure. Yeah. That's part of the part of the layers, right? The, the layers towards the towards the center. Don't That's get as much it. wear as they get more on top. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to coming out to Boston once things open up a little bit more and having a drink at the distillery. For those that uh, may also be interested in, in joining, right, coming out to Boston, what else would you recommend they check out in the area? Well, on, my pro on the property where my distillery is at, um, there's a winery. So that's cool. really fun. And they make custom crushed wine there. They serve pizza. And uh, we have a restaurant, which is this waterfront restaurant, which has great seafood and some Italian specialties owned by the same family as the winery. Nice. The Bruno's. And, um, and then we have like, and we have this $35 million 
park right down the road from the distillery. You can ride your bike, you can walk your dog. My distillery is dog friendly, well-behaved friendly. Um, but yeah, so you can ride around, you can walk around. We're right on a peninsula with beautiful views of Boston. So you can walk around and other than that, it's truly a destination. You have to yeah. you want to yeah. get there. You're not going to stumble upon where we are. For sure. Cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you got a lot of cool stuff going on there. Where can folks keep in touch with you to learn more about the brand and, and the journey? Oh, well, thanks. Our Instagram handle is at Boston Harbor Distill, D-I-S-T-I-L. Um, our website's uh, bostonharbordistillery.com. And again, just come see us at uh, 12R Erickson Street, which is uh, the Port Norfolk neighborhood of Neponset, which is the neighborhood of Dorchester, which is a neighborhood of Boston. So if you can find us, it'll be worth the journey. There you go. I just put it, put it in the GPS and, and let, right let the car drive itself. Perfect. Well, Rhonda, thank you so much for taking some time to spend with us today. Uh, look forward to talking more in the future. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.